And uh, the, a couple of days before uh, I left for the trip, of course, I'd been praying for a special time with them. And, and uh, on Sunday afternoon, uh, everybody went and kind of relaxed and took a nap. And so after kind of during that time, I was sitting on the couch with Mason and uh, he kind of snuggled in. He'd been doing that a little bit progressively during the week. And so he snuggled in a little bit under my arm and I had an opportunity to, to talk to him about his adoption story, the, the circumstances surrounding his birth and my life at that time and kind of how everything played out. And it was really anointed by the Lord because I felt the opportunity to say things to him that I would want to hear if I was his age and I was in his place. And also that I wanted to be able to say as a father trying to redeem this situation in any way possible. I'll just share with you in short a few things that I got to share with him. One, I got to tell him that his life wasn't an accident and that God had used his life despite the circumstances and despite the confusion and the chaos and all the hurts and every all the darkness that was involved. God had used his life as one of the main elements to bring me to himself and that he was no accident. God had purposed him. God had brought him into this world for many purposes and this just being one of them that I may know God's love and glory. And I also got to share with them that he... Um, even though he lived you know, across the country, and even though I had two sons and one on the way, and there's the practical realities of that relationship where I'm responsible for Dutro and Ames and my wife as a family, and his parents are responsible for him, and practically it's not gonna look the same, but still I was able to remind him or let him know that just because the circumstances are the way they are doesn't mean I love him any less than my other two boys. Our relationship may look different and it may be practically and substantially different from the way it looks, but my feelings of love for him are the same. I don't love him any less than my other two sons. And as a 16 year old, I would want to hear that, even if I wasn't adopted, obviously, but especially if I was adopted to be able to hear that. And after I shared that with them, I, I said, I, I, the reason for that is because God loves me unconditionally and he loves you unconditionally he shows no favoritism and he just has complete unadulterated love for his creation for his children that he created and that he desires to redeem and the third thing that I got to share with them was that he could ask me anything he ever wanted to ask me don't feel awkward about any question you might have you can say anything to me you can you can make comments, you can, you can yell at me, you can be angry, you can do whatever you want. I just want you to be able to have the opportunity to express yourself because I, I, I know that I would want that if I was in your shoes. And so anyways, that sweet time, we're both blubbering as I shared this with him and he had his head on my chest and his arm around me and I grabbed his hand and I reminded him something that I shared with him our previous trip that when he was born, I wrote a song for him in the hospital. And I was in the hospital with him for three days before the adopted parents picked him up. And the song essentially progresses through from when my girlfriend at the time was pregnant with him to when he was born in the hospital is the second verse to when he's taken by his new family and lives far away. And then the fourth verse, I reminded him, goes like this as I'm holding him in my chest and holding his hand. 
I said, this was a cry of my heart 16 years ago. I didn't even know the Lord at this time, but the cry of my heart was this. And I said, I gave him the stanza of the last verse. I said, maybe someday we'll meet again and I will take you by the hand. And just like in room 302 at Kaiser where he was born, I'll tell you how much I love you. And we'll laugh until we fall apart and I'll hold you against my heart. But no matter what you choose, because I recognize that I had forfeited the right to be able to be in his life through that choice. But no matter what you choose, I will never stop loving you. And <laughs> get emotional thinking about it right now. But as I said those words to him, I just cried out to God right there with him in my arms, a, a prayer of thanksgiving. Thank you, God, that you heard the cry of my heart that you answered that prayer and you gave me the opportunity to be in his life. And then I thanked him for that opportunity as well. And I was able to give glory to God, not just for this, not just in this moment concerning our relationship, but for what God had done in my life and in the context of our relationship. And as I was preparing for the message this morning, I realized that that would not have been possible if not for this one thing in my life, this one reality that we're going to talk about this morning. And that reality is Christ in me, the hope of glory. Before I came to know Christ, I wouldn't have taken the opportunity to love on Mason the way that uh, I would want to be loved on. I would have been so wrapped up in myself and in my own insecurities and in my own brokenness that I would not have been able to offer that to him. And the story would not have turned out the same. And the one thing that set this story apart for the glory of God, and it's still yet to unfold, is the reality of Christ in me, the hope of glory. I got a small glimpse of what God's glory will be like when everything is restored and everything is redeemed once and for all. And don't we look forward to that hope for the future? That's why we're here this morning, to celebrate what God has done through his death and burial and resurrection and what that means for us right now, but also for the future. We're celebrating the hope that we have for the future. So we're going to look at that this morning in Colossians chapter one. As you're turning there to Colossians chapter one, I'm going to share a little bit of a background about the letter of Colossians. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians. Uh, to a people, to a small church there, a young church that had he had never met before. So probably when he was in Ephesus nearby, in fact, we have a map here I'll show you. I love to show maps just because it reminds us that this isn't make-believe or fairy tales. These are real people at a real place at a real time. So here in Asia Minor, you see the little city of Colossae, just a little ways away from Ephesus. Hop, skip, and a jump in several miles and days walk. And um, you can kind of see a zoomed in version here. So Paul probably is in Ephesus, and he's uh, thinking about uh, this small church that's been planted in Colossae by a friend named Epaphras, who was from Colossae. Somehow Paul had a run-in with this uh, Epaphras, shared the gospel with him. He got saved and had the call of ministry on his life to go back to Colossae and tell the good news and the planet church there. And so that's what he did. And Epaphras came back 
and reported to him what had taken place in Colossae, that there was this young church filled with new converts to the faith that were eager to know uh, more about the truth of God. And Paul must have been concerned that as new converts in this pagan world, there was a chance, there was a danger that these uh, believers, these new believers, could be swayed and pulled back or lured back by the philosophies and the teachings and and these even mystic cults or even maybe uh, uh, Judaism there, you know, the Judaizers coming in and trying to to uh, corrupt a little bit of what uh, the gospel had to offer in freedom in Christ. And so he writes this letter to them with that concern to remind them, really, the whole letter of Colossians is just one reminder that Christ is sufficient. And not only is Christ sufficient, but he is going to, he's the only one that can offer the hope that we need for the future. And so let's go ahead and take a look here at this letter to Colossians. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 24. Up to this point, Paul just gives us some prayer of thanksgiving. And he also talks, uh, reminds them about the supremacy of Christ, saying he's the image of the invisible God. And then he leads to his work of ministry and this precious truth of Christ in us, the hope of glory, beginning in verse 24. So let's pick up there in verse 24. Chapter 1 of verse 24, this is God's word. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word this morning, we just pray, God, that this very word that we are reading would in turn read us, God, this living and active word that you have given us. Teach us, instruct us, and encourage us, admonish us by the truth of your word, so that, Lord, we can go from this place worshiping you and glorifying you, having come to know or be reminded more of the realities of your glory. Lord, do your word in us through the power of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I look at this passage, I see two things going on. I'm really just going to focus on one of them um, and maybe touch base, touch on the second thing. But I see two things going on. Two ways God's word is made known. Paul recognized this through his ministry. As I said, I'm going to focus most of the attention on the first one, which is revelation. How do we know God's truth? Well, it is first and foremost by revelation. And there are three things involved with revelation, with this revelation that I see here in this passage. Uh, the first thing that revelation involves here is it involves affliction. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. First and foremost, this verse needs some clarification because there's been a lot of misunderstanding 
throughout the years and in some uh, religious institutions about what this means. You notice that phrase in there in the middle where it says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. We need to clarify that. When Paul says, I fill up in my body what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, he's not talking about anything about the finished work of Christ. He's not talking about the atonement. In fact, the Greek word there used for afflictions is never used of Calvary. There's no way that Paul could be saying that he is adding or somehow uh, continuing or completing the work of Christ on the cross. That just isn't true. In fact, Jesus, his last words on the cross were, it is finished. And so there's no way that that's what Paul can be talking about here. So what is Paul talking about? If he's not talking about something lacking in the work of Christ and his finished work on the cross, what is he, what is he talking about? Well, the New Testament makes it clear that Paul had suffered a lot for the sake of the gospel and for the cause of the church. Paul's lot as a servant was very clear throughout Scripture. In every letter that he writes and in the book of Acts written by Luke, you can see that Paul was a servant to suffering. In fact, this is what the Lord told him would be the case when he uh, kind of had an intervention with him there on the road to Damascus. In Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16 say this, just a little bit of context. Uh, he, he, was, he was blinded on the road to Damascus, and the Lord spoke to him. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, and the Lord said, I am going to show you how much you must suffer for my name. And so he tells this guy, Ananias, who lives in Damascus, he says, hey, I'm sending you to Saul. I've met him on the road, and I want you to go and pray for him and take care of his needs. And Ananias says, Lord, I know this dude. He, he's a bad guy. He has, been, he has been persecuting the church. He's been arresting Christians and having them put to death. And you want me? I believe in Jesus to go and get this guy who's been putting Jesus followers to death. But the Lord said to Ananias in verse 15 of chapter 9, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Paul himself talks about the rejoicing that he has, not just in this verse, but throughout his letters about his suffering with Christ. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, Philippians 3.10. It's a nice one to put up on your fridge, by the way. But you want to put a dot, 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 maybe not at this part. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. What is Paul saying in this verse, in verse 24? He's saying that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, and I am glad to take upon myself the suffering which I was causing before I became a follower of Christ, the suffering for the sake of Christ's body. If there's anything that I can suffer for the sake of Christ's body so that they don't have to suffer or so that they can see the authenticity of my message, which God gave me, then let it be so. He's not rejoicing that he is suffering, but he is rejoicing that he is able to suffer for the cause of Christ and the sake of the name. And that's what's going on here. He was made to be an example for us. 
And he's saying, just as the head suffered, just as Christ himself suffered, so must the body suffer. And if I can take upon myself that suffering for your sake, then I rejoice in the ability to serve my God and my King in that way. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 20? He said, remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And Saul, who became Paul, understood this. Now, it's you know, it's one thing to say this and to look at the scriptures and to look at church history and to see the suffering that took place in the body of Christ. It's another thing to sit here in this wonderful country that we have and be able to sit in freedom and worship and think about our lives and think, man, I look at that suffering and I look at the promises that if anybody <laughs> desires to live godly in Christ Jesus, they will suffer persecution. And yeah, I might get a little bit of rub here and there, but I'm pretty blessed. I don't really have the, you know, the reality of suffering in my life for the sake of the name. And that's, I don't, I, I don't, you know, I don't understand why that's the case for us, but I just thank God that he has given us the opportunity to worship him freely, to not be in a country where, you know, our life is at risk or our livelihood is at risk because of the things that we believe and teach. Now things, you know, you hear things in the news where there are some exceptions to that. But for the most part, we're pretty comfortable here. And there's kind of a cost that comes with that comfort, I think, because when we, when we are under that reality of suffering for Christ, and if you look through church history, what you see is this powerful work of the gospel going forth. It has been said that the, you know, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church because they would see the way somebody would suffer like Paul suffered, and they would be convicted and convinced of the authenticity of the message, of the gospel message, that this person was willing to suffer and endure so much for the message that they're preaching, they have nothing to gain out of that experience. They have nothing to gain. And so it brings credibility and authenticity to their message. I'm thankful that we don't have to suffer in that way, but... It is true that we have benefited from the suffering of others who have gone before us. If you're holding a Bible in your lap in the English language, it's because many, many people gave their lives preserving this work so that you could hold it there in your lap. And so at the very least, if you are here this morning and you're not convinced of the truth of God's word and the reality of the gospel message, at the very least, this should cause you to give consideration because so much has been suffered so much has been lost in human terms for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the church throughout the ages. And here we are reaping the benefits of that. And at the very least, as I said, you should give consideration. But really, this message can be trusted. If you will follow me there, the message can be trusted because God's word is true. He's revealed himself through the prophetic word and also through those who have served him and suffered for him. The message can be trusted. Well, we said that revelation involves affliction. Secondly, revelation involves a commission. Look at verse 25. Paul says, I have become its servant. That means from the previous verse, the servant to the body of Christ. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. 
And as we said from verse 24, Paul was a servant. He saw himself as a servant of the church, verse 24, but also in verse 23 ahead, which we didn't read. He says, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So Paul is identifying himself as a servant of the gospel, the message that brings salvation and that gives birth to the church. And he's also he's also proclaiming himself as a servant of the body. He's a servant of the body of Christ, the church, a servant of the message and a servant of the church. And this servanthood or servant servitude came by way of commission from God there in verse 25. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Well, as the message went out into this pagan world and there was a lot of competition for religious views and there was mystery religions and there were things that were vying for people's attention and affection. Life was hard and if there was some way to have this secret knowledge that can make your life better, people would chase after that. And this is the world that the gospel broke into. And so you can imagine that there'd be a lot of false teachers coming in and saying, hey, I have something that's going to make life better for you or more meaningful for you. This is what Paul kind of had to compete with. And so a few things that we see about his life were not the case for these other pseudo-religious preachers. And one of the things, as we mentioned already, was his suffering. Nobody's going to suffer for something they know isn't true. So if you're trying to peddle some you know, religious philosophy to be able to gain something out of it, you're not going to be willing to suffer for that. And so again, that adds authenticity to Paul's message. Uh, but the second thing is that if you are peddling some religious philosophy, it came by way of your own imagination or human tradition. And in Paul's case, that wasn't, that wasn't true. He was not commissioned by himself. He didn't appoint himself to preach this message or to proclaim this message. He was commissioned by God, as we read just a bit ago um, from Acts chapter 9 when he encountered the Lord on the road to Damascus. And so his commission was a a divine commission from God, and his work was a divine work to present to the world and to that which would become the church the word of God in its fullness. And this in its fullness could also mean in its fulfillment. In other words, to fulfill the work of the gospel, which is to have it preached and believed by those who hear it. That is the fullness of the work of the gospel, that it would be proclaimed, revealed, and that it would be taken hold of by those who would believe and trust in it. But we saw that revelation involves affliction, that involves a commission. It also involves a mystery. It involves a mystery. Let's look at verse 26. He says, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. Before I became a believer, when I heard the word mystery, I would think of like a mystery novel or, you know, some kind of whodunit uh, story or something like that. But there's a few things, there's many things that the Bible talks about that are way different than the world's understanding of them. This is one of those things, a mystery. What is a biblical mystery? It's not a puzzle. It's not a paradox. It's something that's been concealed and must be revealed. In other words, it cannot be discovered. Biblical mystery cannot be discovered. It can't be discovered through investigation. It can't be discovered by calculation. And it can't be discovered from speculation. It can only be known by revelation. That's the only way 
that a biblical mystery can be made known as if it's revealed. It's something that God knows that we don't, and we would never know it unless he told us. That's what revelation means, to reveal something that cannot be known otherwise unless it's revealed. It is not someone's hypothesis. One writer said, truths that people could not know because they belong to the hidden counsels of God cannot be stolen from heaven by the inspired guesses of religious geniuses. There's no sign stealing in heaven. For those of you who are sports fans, which it's the Super Bowl today, so yeah. probably aren't even here, I guess. <laughs> Nothing can be taken from heaven, from the secret counsels of God. I think I have the verse Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us. In other words, there are many, many things that we don't know, but we do know the one who knows those things, and he is able to reveal to us the things that we need to know. And throughout his word, you see this progressive revelation taking place as God reveals himself, first as Elohim, this God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And then he reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses says, who are you? What name should I take back to the Israelites? How are they going to believe me that you sent me? And, he's, and the Lord says, I am that I am. He gives them the covenant name, Jehovah or Yahweh, saying, I am everything that you need in your moment of need. I am all things. I was, I am, and I am to come. That's the name of God. That's the revelation of God. Who is this God? Who is this great I am? And his ultimate revelation comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's that which was concealed about God, foretold by the prophets as we are looking forward to the coming of this Messiah, who was he going to be? What was he going to be like? We got glimpses of him throughout the Old Testament prophets. And then all of a sudden, boom, he comes on the scene and God reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The ultimate revelation of God. We cannot have discovered how God was going to work out the brokenness of this world. There was no finding it. The world's been trying to discover it forever through education or through social reform or through all these methods to be able to make the world a happy place again. And every time it has failed. The only way that the world could be saved was through the revelation of the gospel of Christ, that he in himself was reconciling all things to God through the work of his re redemption and his atonement on Calvary's cross. This was... This is a great mystery. But there's even more to this mystery. So what is this mystery that the Apostle Paul is talking about? As we look at verse 27, we see that it involves two things. This mystery involves a people. It says in verse 27, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. To them God has chosen to make known among the the Gentiles. Gentiles there just means nations, just means people other than the Jews. See, God's word and his plan was initiated through Abraham and his offspring, the Jews. This is where the bud of the gospel was planted, and of course it came into full bloom at the appearance and work of Christ. And so the people... <coughs> All along were this chosen people, the Israelites, God's people, the Jews. 
And when God revealed himself to these people, he gave glimpses that this work wasn't just going to be for them alone, that ultimately it was going to have fulfillment throughout the nations. And so this isn't a New Testament concept. We see it throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Moses talks about it in Deuteronomy. And this mystery was kind of concealed in that reality that there's this one people and it hasn't broken out to the other people. So what's going to happen here? And God says, no, the salvation that is to be provided ultimately through Jesus Christ isn't just for the Jews. It's for all people. It's for all people. Isn't that good news? We have many, we have, you know, at least a few ethnic Jews uh, among us within the congregation, the fellowship here. And that's great. That's awesome. That's a picture of God fulfilling his work and his promise to the nation of Israel to the Jewish people. But most of us in here are probably Gentiles. We're non-Jews. And we could have easily been left out of God's plan. God could have left us out. But he decided to reveal the mystery that he wasn't just the savior of the Jews. He's the savior of the whole world through his Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that... Mystery being revealed, especially during this time, it would have been inconceivable. You know, it had to be a revealed mystery to Paul. There's no way he would have come up with this on his own. That God, you know, it took as you read through the book of Acts and through the, the epistles, you see multiple times people scratching their heads. Peter and Paul and all these guys scratching their heads and saying, Really? The Gentiles? They get this too? It's been ours all along, and they, they get it now? And the Lord says, yes, that had to be revealed to them. They weren't going to all of a sudden change their mind after centuries and centuries of believing and living one way and all of a sudden open this up to the people. So the mystery involved a people. Good news to those at Colossae. Good news to those here at the Rock. God came to rescue the people of the world, not just the Jews. So it involved a people, this mystery, but it also involved a person. It involved a person, and this person is Christ. To them, again, verse 27, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. How did this happen? He didn't just come to be with his people, to dwell with his people, Emmanuel, God with us. He wanted to be in his people. How did this happen? Well, in John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus made it very clear as he was talking to Nicodemus, this religious leader. Nicodemus said, hey, we know that you must be from God because nobody can do the miraculous works that you were doing. And Jesus just cuts to the chase. You know, let's just get right to the chase. Don't have much time. Um, have a lot of work to do. And he says, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Unless he is born again. What does that mean? It has a lot of weight if Jesus is saying the only way you can go to heaven, the only way you can see the kingdom of God is if you are born again. I've talked to a lot of people and they say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those born again Christians. I'm like, that's the only kind of Christian there is. You can't be a Christian unless you're born again. And I take him to this verse and, said, and say, look, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You have to be born again. In John 14, verses 16 and 7, Jesus tells us a little bit more about this. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, which is also called the Spirit of Christ in Scripture. 
The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. In other words, at the completed work of Christ on the cross, after that time, he's going to pray to the Father. The Father's going to send the Holy Spirit. We see a picture of the Trinity there. And Christ himself, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will live inside of us. John had already alluded to this in his gospel way before these chapters. and He, could, he got right into it in chapter 1, uh, verses 12 and 13. He said, Yet to all who received him, meaning Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Peter said this too in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And James, he joined the bandwagon as well. Chapter 1 of verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Jesus said, you must be born again. I'm sending the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of you as you believe in me. You're not only going to be forgiven for the sins and the crimes that you've committed against God, but you're going to be given new life through spiritual rebirth so that you can live in the reality of that forgiveness and honor God with your life. So what does this mean? Well, it means that you've been made alive in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. You've been made alive. You are made an heir. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You've received an inheritance, you've been made alive, and you have power for life. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 10 to 11, But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if, or since, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. You've been made alive through Christ by being born again, by trusting in Jesus and receiving that redemptive and indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. You're guaranteed an inheritance and the Holy Spirit living inside of you is the deposit that guarantees that truth and that reality. And you have power for life. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and is also able to bring you to life, not just spiritually and eternally, but also Circumstantially, you can rely on the Spirit of God to bear the work or the fruit of the Spirit in you, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control against such things. There is no law. These are the things that God has given us in reality of his gift of the Spirit dwelling inside of us. This mystery that God himself wouldn't just be among his people, but that he would be in his people. Did you know if you believe in Jesus that you have Christ in you? Your Savior, your Redeemer, lives in you. Isn't that a remarkable truth? Sometimes it's hard for us to believe that. It's hard for us to remember that. I don't wake up every morning thinking, oh, thank you, Christ, for living in me. 
I wake up thinking, oh man, I've got to brush my hair and I've got to eat something. I'm hungry. I'm starving. That's why they call it breakfast. Breakfast, right? Christ lives in you. Christ is in you. And he is the hope of glory. What are you facing in life this morning? What are you facing in life? All of us are facing something, some kind of hardship. Is it relational brokenness? Compromised health? Financial hardship? Troubles at work or with employment? What is it? What are you dealing with? Whatever it is, the Lord wants you to know that he is with you. And he's not just with you, but he is in you. If you've trusted in him and you believe in him. He is your hope of glory. He is the promise of what is yet to come, Jesus himself. And as we enter communion this morning, it just reminds me that God is so good that he would lay down his life for me. That he would take upon himself a wooden cross that was hewn out of a tree that he made. And he would bear it to Calvary's hill. And he would allow, he would allow those that he created and desire so much to be in relationship with him, to nail him to that tree and to lift him up in shame and dishonor and blasphemy. That God would do that for me? He would do that for me as I'm shaking a fist at heaven, as I turn from God and go my own way? That he would allow me to be part of his family after what I have done? Communion is a reminder of what Christ has done for us. And he said, as often as you do this, and as often as you take communion, do this in remembrance of me, the work that I've done for you. That this work isn't just something that's going to cause you to reform yourself, but it's going to change you from the inside out. Because you're going to be transformed by my love. It's, no, it's, not, it's really never been about rules and regulations. It's been about relationship. I want you. Christ wants me. He wants me. He's the one that's given me the ability to live for him. He's the one that's given me the ability to follow and cooperate with him, even in the work of, of, of showing love to my son who was adopted. And so as we enter communion this morning, we're just reminded of Christ's love. The ushers are going to come forward and we're going to um, deliver the elements to you and if you're not really sure what communion is, it's really just a picture of what Christ has done for us. Before we sing our last song, just a final thought about what the second point was. We said that this passage had to do with revelation. It also had to do with proclamation. And this proclamation simply involves Christ. In verse 28, it says, We proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Christ is the message. It's not Christian living. It's not Christian morality. It's not Christian virtues. It's not even Christianity. Erase that from your mind. Jesus is the message. Jesus is our hope. It's not self-reform. It's not social justice. It's not public policy. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. So as we go out, let's correct other people's understanding about truth. That's what admonishing is. Let's teach them the positive things and realities about God's truth and all wisdom that we may apply what we have learned to our lives. Therefore, we may be able to be presented before Christ, not perfect in sinlessness, 
but complete in maturity. That's God's desire for us. And the final word is that Paul says, you know, I labor so hard for this, verse 29, but it's not just me. It's struggling with all his strength. It's his effort in me. That wonderful picture of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. He says it's his energy which so powerfully works in me. Let's take the revelation of God that he's given to us, this mystery that's been applied to our hearts, and let's proclaim it to the world. It may cause us to be a little uncomfortable. It may cause us to squirm a little bit, but we have such great freedom as we were talking about before. There's somebody in your life, there's multiple people in your life that need to know this message. And you may be the link to share it with them. So just pray. You know, no pressure. I don't want to pressure you or make you feel like you have to do something. But I believe that as you as you commit that to the Lord, He's going to lead you and guide you. And as you labor to work that out, He's going to be right there with you and in you to, to accomplish that task in your life. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.